All right, Ezra chapter 7. Israel is in the exile. They're in Babylon. Um, They've been exiled because they were poor stewards of the land and the opportunity and the privilege that God gave them. And so they've been exiled for 70 years and they're getting ready to go back. A remnant of them is getting ready to go back. And Ezra is going to be one of the people who is going to lead them as they return from the exile. Chapter 7, verse 6 tells us a little bit about who Ezra was. Um, This Ezra went up from Babylon and he was a scribe. He was skilled in the law of Moses, which Yahweh God of Israel had given. So he's a scribe. He understands the law. He knows the law. Today we're going to take a look at the heart, we're going to take a look at the home, and we're going to take a look at the ministry. And we see all three of those things in one verse in Ezra chapter 7. See it in Ezra chapter 7 verse 10. Remember Ezra is a scribe and it says, For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of Yahweh. To study it and to practice it and to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. So he studied it. He practiced it, and he taught it. We have to remember what he was studying when he says he studies the law. He had the original Ten Commandments. He had some of the writings that came after that. Let's just take a look at what he sees when he studies. The word study there really means seek. He seeks after. Uh, if you were here five years ago or so, um, you remember that Scott taught through Leviticus 19. Leviticus 19 is part of the Old Testament law. This is what... Ezra was dragging himself before. And what we want to understand here this morning is when you bring before yourself and you bring your heart before the word, this is what you get. You get the Lord. The Lord is giving instructions in Leviticus 19. I want you to notice how many times the Lord says, I am Yahweh and I'm holy. He starts in verse 2. You shall be holy for I, Yahweh, your God, am holy. Verse 4. I, Yahweh, I am Yahweh, your God. He goes on, down in verse 10. I am Yahweh, your God. All these laws, all these instructions, and interleave between all of them is statements. I am Yahweh. Verse 16. You shall not go about in slander. Why? Because I am Yahweh. He goes on throughout the rest of the chapter. Verse 30. You shall keep my Sabbaths and revere my sanctuary, because I am Yahweh. Right at the end of the chapter, verse 36, you shall have just balances. You shall have just balances. Why? Because I am Yahweh. You shall thus observe all of my statutes and all of my ordinance and do them, because I am Yahweh. When you drag yourself before the word of the Lord, you get Yahweh. You get God. You have God's understanding in all of this. Israel was sitting there and they had in front of them all of these laws. And the reason why they had them was because God was holy. So when you come before the word, you interact with a holy God. That's what Ezra did. He, he met with God because God was holy. And he benefited from that in a great way. So back in Ezra chapter 7, jump ahead a couple of chapters. They actually leave Babylon and they, they arrive back in Jerusalem. And they find something very disheartening. They find the fact that there were um, priests, there were Levites who had not kept God's law. And what they had done is they had intermarried with the nations around them. So someone comes to him and he's describing what has happened in verse 2 of chapter 9. They've taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves, daughters from some of the nations around them. 
so that the holy race has intermingled with the people of the lands. Indeed, the hands of princes and rulers have been foremost in this unfaithfulness. The princes and the rulers have been unfaithful in this. So this is how Ezra moves from his heart to his home. This is what he does. He considers himself one of these people. Look at this. Verse 5 in chapter 9. At the evening offering, I arose from my humiliation. Even with the garment and my robe torn, I fell on my knees and stretched out my hands to Yahweh my God. And I said, O my God, I am ashamed and I am embarrassed to lift up my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen above our heads and our guilt has grown even to the heavens. He's including himself with all these people. He doesn't separate himself from them. He's one of them. He knows that he needs to be a part of them. And so he is one of them. And he speaks to them. And he tells them exactly what it is that they've done. He speaks to them towards the end of the chapter. Um, He says, Now, O God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments. He knows that he needs to teach them. And this is his ministry. He teaches them. And so what happens in the rest of the the letter, the rest of the book, is that Ezra Ezra leads a process by which the men become faithful to one wife. And so Ezra is a man who drags his heart before the word of God. He sees a holy God. He sees how God is offended by sin, how God is separate from sin, and how we must be separate from sin as well. He sees those around him. They're living in sin. He becomes a part of them, and he confronts them with their sin. He's interacting with them, and then he teaches them what is right and what is good. And in the interest of time, we won't go into it, but the rest of the letter is detailing how it is that he resolves the situation. So when you think about shepherding your heart, you think, well, why should I drag my heart before the Lord? Why should I meet with God? Why should I do this? It's because the people around you need this. You need this. God saved you into a body, and he saved you into the body so that he could use you. And we desperately, desperately need that. So um, our body, our flesh, our mind doesn't want to to always meet with the Lord uh, because we have other things that are coming up that day. We've had a long day the day before. We have a lot going on, but we desperately need to meet with God because we don't know what is coming in front of us. Um, and we need our time in the Lord to help us be ready to minister in our home and minister outside of our home in this church. So let's pray, and let's get ready to take a look at 1 Thess 5, 14. Father, I thank you again for the privilege of being here this morning. Thank you for each and every one of these dear ladies who are here this morning. They have taken time, they have taken effort, they've taken energy to get here, Lord. I thank you for that, Lord. And Lord, this is a time that's about you, it's about your word, and it's about us and the way that we need to live under your word. Lord, I pray that you would help all of us. Lord, I can't speak and these dear ladies can't listen well without the help of your Holy Spirit. So I pray that you would come and you would help us and you would minister to us. Lord, that your word would be clear. Lord, I pray that Grace Bible Church would benefit because of our time together this morning. Lord, I pray that friendships would be stronger. I pray that they would be stronger in the way that um, they interact with one another biblically, in the way that your word is used. Lord, I pray that our friendships would be in friendships that are more encouraging. They are sharpening friendships. Lord, that as the result, this, this body that you have assembled together here would be one that portrays the image of your son to the, the world around us in a way that's more and more accurate every day. So we need your help, Lord. We need your help in a big way. 
I pray that you would attend to us, and I pray it in Christ's name. Amen. All right. So what I say to the guys is, if you have your Bibles, turn with them to 1 Thessalonians 5, or tap on your devices to 1 Thessalonians 5. And we're going to start there. Um, So uh, our lives are full of relationships. We have relationships all around us. We have relationships with the person that we're married to, if you're married. We have relationships with the people that we live with. Um, We have relationships with people that we work with. We have relationships with people in our small group. We have relationships here at Wellspring. Um, And at the same time, we live in a fallen world. Um, Every one of us is descended from Adam. Every one of us is descended from Noah. And we are all ourselves here in a mixed condition. And because we're in the mixed condition, the relationships that we have bear the marks of that mixed condition. And from time to time, we find ourselves in a relationship with a person or we find ourselves being unruly. We find ourselves being faint-hearted. We find ourselves being weak. Um, we find ourselves in need of being patient with all of those around us. And this passage is going to help us understand how to do that. And that's my goal and my heart in all of this. My heart in this is for a stronger Grace Bible Church. So that you ladies would contribute in a big way to the strength of this church. um, So that the world around us could see God's design. That the body of Christ actually loves one another in a way that um, the world is not capable of doing. So uh, we are going to be looking at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 verse 14. Let's do this. Let's uh, briefly just remind ourselves of how it is that Paul has come to know these people in Thessalonica. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at, um, in the first section, we're going to look at Paul's thoughts for the church in Thessalonica and his encouragements there and his instructions towards them. And then we'll look at the, the actual verse itself. Okay. So Paul is on his missionary journey. It's his second missionary journey. And this is a missionary journey that takes place, half of it in what is today modern-day Greece. And in that half of the journey, Paul starts in Philippi, up at the top. If you can imagine Scott's map, he's got the map, and Philippi is up near the top. And in Acts chapter 17, there's a great deal of persecution. Uh, Paul has to leave quickly. He leaves and he travels, something to be about 50 miles. Um, He leaves and he comes to the church in Thessalonica. He's there for three Sabbaths, and he's there for a max of a month. And by God's grace, the church is started and it's formed, and the church is, is consisting of a significant number of believers. These are people who are serious in their faith. Um, they don't know much, um, but yet they are converted. They are believers. Um, the Jews that caused the persecution in Philippi followed them to Thessalonica, and Paul couldn't stay very long. He had to leave because his life was, was under threat. And so he leaves and he goes down to Berea and the Jews follow him there. So he leaves there and he heads down to Athens and he finds some measure of safety there. And uh, later he's joined in Athens by Silas and he's joined by Timothy as well. But he knows that the persecution is still existing. It's still back in Thessalonica and there's this fledgling little church that's back there. And he's wondering how it is that they're doing. How are they doing? I mean, I only spent a month with them and I know the persecution is there. I'm very concerned for them. So he sends Timothy back to them. Timothy heads back up to Thessalonica. He learns how they're doing. He comes back with a very encouraging report. They are doing well. They are doing really, really well. And so Paul writes to them from Athens after Timothy's return and his good report to them. 
And so that's the occasion in which he's writing this letter. That's how he gets to know them. And this is all on his second missionary journey. This is the first of his two letters to them. Um, We'll see throughout this that um, both of his letters contain a lot of eschatological information in it. And there's a really good reason, because these people need to be encouraged. So we'll talk about that in our time together. But like a lot of Paul's letters, he divides them in in two halves. This letter is divided in two halves. The beginning of this this letter, he has has thoughts about them, he has affections for them, and he displays them. And I want to share three ways in which Paul thinks about them. Okay. So first of all, in chapter 1, Paul has a, a joy over the fruit of their salvation. He spends the whole chapter, and I think Sarah is going to be teaching on this in the coming weeks, about how Paul is overjoyed at the fruit of their salvation. We see it in verse 8 of chapter 1. Paul is telling them that the word of the Lord has sounded forth from them, and where it has sounded forth to is in the Mediterranean world around Thessalonica. Everybody is getting to know about them because of the change which took place in one month when Paul was there. So Paul is overjoyed at their salvation. The second thing Paul does in chapter 2 is he recognizes their current suffering. There are some Jews that are in Thessalonica, and there are some Jews that came to Thessalonica as well from Philippi. And verse 14 of chapter 2 helps us see this very clearly. Paul says, You endured the same sufferings at the hand of your own countrymen. Paul is telling them that the experience that the church in Jerusalem has from the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the persecution that they receive, they're experiencing the same thing here in Thessalonica. So he's acknowledging their persecution. And the third thing that he notices is Paul is very relieved over Timothy's report. Chapter 3, verse 6. Now Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us good news of your faith and love. So this is a church. It's a very young church. It has a genuine gospel reputation. Uh, They're living in much, much tribulation, and they are persevering, and they're doing very well. But they're a young church, and so there is much they need to know about the Christian life, and that's why he spends the second half of the letter giving them instructions. Okay, so in the second half of the letter, he's instructing them because these are new believers. They've got this newfound faith, and he needs to explain to them how it is that they should live. So in the first thing that he talks about is purity. Chapter 4, verses 3 through 8, he talks about purity. You need to think about your relationships. You need to think about your sexuality. You need to think about your marriage very differently than you used to. And he spells that out in verses 3 through 8. And he talks about disciplined living in chapter 4, in verses 9 through 12. And he says, you know, listen, there are some of you who are not living in a way that makes good use of the time that you have. And in verse 11, he says, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend your own business and work with your hands. There were people who were sitting around. He even says, work with your hands just as we commanded you. It was something that Paul instructed them on while he was there for that first month that he was there. He noticed it. He saw it. And of course, he's talking to them about heaven, and so they have questions about how do we get there and when is this? So he spends the the rest of chapter 4 talking about the rapture. Verses 13 through 18. There are all these questions about eternal destiny. When do we get there? How do we get there? What about the people who die before Jesus comes again? What about them? So Paul addresses that at the end of chapter 4. He also tells them about the day of the Lord in chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. 
There's a distinction between the two, and they were fuzzy on that. They were not clear about that. And so Paul spends 11 verses explaining to them about the day of the Lord. And then he has some instructions about relationships. There's two kinds of relationships that he instructs them on. He instructs them on relationships between the body themselves and the church leaders in verses 12 and 13 of chapter 5. So between the sheep and their elders. And then in verses 14 and 15, he talks to them about the relationship between themselves and themselves. This is how you need to relate to one another. And then he gives them instructions in the remainder of the letter about personal holiness. You know, where he says, pray without ceasing, do everything with thanksgiving, rejoice all the time, strive for holiness. All of this was new to the church in Thessalonica. They, they didn't understand this. They didn't know this. So Paul had to give this to them. So let's read chapter um, 5, verse 14 together. It's pretty short. And we all know what it says, but it's good to have it in front of us. Paul writes and he says, We urge you, brethren, we're urging you. This is important. You need to get this. Admonish the unruly. Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. And be patient with everyone. I'm going to ask you to be patient with me while I can drink. Okay, so admonishing the unruly. Again, this is a young church, very young church, um, but they had heard the gospel. They had heard that there is eternal life. They had heard that Jesus is coming back. Um, Some of them had left their work responsibilities For whatever reason, they did. They they left their work responsibilities. They were waiting for the return of Jesus. Paul had to come to know about this somehow. He probably observed it when he was there. But as Silas and Timothy came down to see him, when he was down in Athens, he probably heard more about it there. They said, yeah, you know, this is probably a real problem. Um, But it was significant enough for him to mention this. We see the basis for this back in chapter 4. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business. In verse 11, work with your hands. So there were people who were very idle. And in the ESV, um, the reading, I think, is admonish the idle. The word used there is idle. This actually was a long-standing problem. This is a problem that is still in place as the the second letter is written. Paul writes this later. In uh, chapter, let's see, in chapter 3 of the second letter, at the end of that, in verse 6 and verse 11, starting in verse 6, he says, Keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life who leads an idle life. Keep away from that one. Verse 11, For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life and doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. So this was a problem. This was a problem that was pretty deeply rooted. It's a problem that persisted. So first let's take a look at what it means to be unruly, and then we'll take a look at what it means to admonish that one who is unruly. So uh, the Greek word for unruly describes something that is the opposite of being drawn together or the opposite of being well arranged. This has its origins in military language. It's something that has the, it's being opposite of being drawn together. The unruly one has, and this is how you fill in your blanks, has deviated from the prescribed order or rule. Deviated from the prescribed order or rule. This is a person who had advanced beyond a position of safety, 
and now they're exposing themselves to a significant degree of danger because where they have advanced to. And this is an inherent character trait in this person. This is not something that they just kind of stumbled into. Um, this is a character trait of this person that they lack the restraint to stay within the prescribed order that God has put in front of them. This is not a person who stumbled into a one-time sin. This is the pattern of their life, that at least in this area, they're, they're characterized by wandering outside of the authority that God has placed over them. The natural course of this person's mind is to retain freedom in every way possible. And living under the authority of another is not even a consideration to them. It's not a part of their thought process. It's not part of who they are. They're thinking about their life, the last thing that they want to do is live under the authority of another. And so they're prone, they're inclined to be idle and to wait and sit around and, and follow their own inclinations. Got an example for this. You know how it is when you've got a kid who's sick? You go down to the pharmacist and the pharmacist gives you medication for this. Medication usually comes with a protocol, right? It's got a dosage and it's got an interval that you're supposed to take this medication. And when you do that and when you follow the medication, generally things work out pretty well. But the unruly one is the one who just ignores the protocol. He takes whatever dosage he wants, he takes it whenever he wants, and when it's gone, it's gone. And he kind of deals with the consequences because of that. That's an example of what it means to be unruly. This person has no thoughts for staying inside the boundaries that God has placed above them. And what this person needs is for those thoughts to be added to them because those thoughts are not a part of them. And that's exactly what an admonishment is. Admonishment is a compound word. It has two words together in the Greek. And the first word deals with placing something in position. And the second word deals with your mind. What is placed in the mind is a warning that applies biblical truth. So the next thing we're going to fill in in our blanks is... Literally, to admonish is to place a warning in the mind. You're placing a warning in the mind when you admonish somebody. Let's make note of the direction here. Something that's coming from outside of the person is being admonished. Something needs to be added to them. So there's something outside of them that's being put into them because they're lacking it. And this is not something that is a soft, half-hearted plea. It's not a request. It's not a thought, it's not a suggestion, it's not an idea. Hey, I've got this idea, you might want to try this. This is something that's much more than that. It is a stern exhortation. This is really stern. It's a sharp reproof that's designed to rescue the one who has stepped outside of God's design and order for their life. So the one admonishing is coming to the one being admonished and they're saying, you need this, you really, really need this. I have something for you and you need to hear this. Chances are you don't even know you need this because it's inherent in who you are. It's, it's the way you've been for a long period of time. It's a pattern that you have fallen into, and it, it describes you. But when you go to somebody with an admonishment, you, you aim to do two things. The first is that you clearly show them their sin. You want to give them a clear understanding of their sin. When you're going to somebody, you don't want to be vague. You don't want to sort of have an idea. You want to be very clear about what the sin is. Second thing you want to do is you want to point them to a very clear path of repentance. Clearly identify the sin. Clearly point out a path of repentance. 
So what if you're saying, okay, that's good, but I don't really know what unruliness looks like all the time. Let's walk through a couple examples. Let's say you have a husband, and he has a job, and he comes home, and he's always complaining about his job, whether it's the tasks that he has to do, or whether it's the people that he has to do it with, or where he has to travel, or what he has to do, or how he's paid, or how much he's paid, or not paid, where he sits on the ladder in, in the structure of things at work. He's always complaining. This man is unruly. He's unruly because he's stepped beyond God's design for him. The man is to work as unto the Lord. The Lord is his master, and the Lord has what is good for him in place. There is a way to recognize things at work that need to be remedied, things that need to be fixed, but to come home and just complain about it is not working unto the Lord. That's an example of an unruly man. He's to work unto the Lord regardless of the circumstances. Let's see, there's a wife, and she strains against God's design for her husband's leadership over her in her home. Every turn, she's seeking to exert herself and place herself above her husband. This person is unruly because they're fighting against God's design. That in a marriage, you have in a marriage between believers, you have a spiritual equality, but you have a role distinction. That's unruliness. Another example could be a friend who continues to ignore biblical principles in some area of their life. You're consistently going to a friend and you're talking to them about something. They just ignore you. It doesn't have any effect. You repeatedly appeal to them. You come to them with scripture. You encourage them. You pray for them. Uh, the friend just continues to ignore that. They just blow right by your, your encouragements. Another example would be a sheep who is consistently difficult to shepherd in the flock. This is one whose nature is so unteachable that the elder's service has become a grief. This kind of person is described in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. The elder's service over them is a grief. They sit with them, they walk with them, they pray with them, they encourage them, and they are consistently unteachable. That person is an unruly person. So the focus here is on the kind of person that a person is. Let's talk for a minute about what an unruly person is not. An unruly person is not one who has established a, a pattern of biblical faithfulness in their life and they've stumbled into something recently. I've done that this week. I've been faithful. I've been eager to be in the Word. I've been happy to be in the Word. And yet I've stumbled. We all stumble. We think things. We say things. We do things. We wish we could take those back. It's not part of the character of who we are. There's no long-standing evidence of ongoing sin in this person's life. Um, this is just something that they stumbled into, a moment of weakness. They, they gave into their flesh. They gave into anything, pride, jealousy, envy, anger. That's not being unruly. That's not the character of who you are. So again, let's just remember that this is somebody who characteristically extends beyond God's design for their life in some area of their life. And what they need is they need a warning that's placed into their mind because they don't have that information in their mind. So let's talk about how we admonish this person. And let's not lose sight of the fact that we're working with the body of Christ here. Okay? So what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you uh, six principles that you can remember. Hopefully they're very short. You can just write down the one reference that goes with them. If you're looking at this later, you, you might be able to get a, a longer look at it. Before I do that... Again. 
really glad my wife reminded me to get a refill on my water. Thanks, dear. I'd be out by now. Helper suitable. Really blessed. Okay, so um, first principle. Remember who you used to be. And uh, there's a good passage that helps you remember who you used to be. I found it very helpful to put this in my prayer life every day, mostly every day. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Let me just read this for you. Um, The best instrument that a, a God uses is a humble instrument. And remembering who you used to be helps keep you humble. Let me read this. You were dead in your transgressions in which you formerly walked. According to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's working in the sons of disobedience. Among them too, we all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath, just like the rest. Remember that there, there was a time in your life when there was no distinction between you and the world that's around you. That humbles you and that prepares you to go to this person humbly. Second principle is to examine yourself before you go to them. Matthew chapter 7, verses 3 through 5. This is coming from Matthew. This is a former tax collector, one who was hated by the Jews because he always cheated them. He had sold out to the Romans. He was probably very familiar with examining himself when he would go to people because people knew who he used to be. He says, why do you look at the speck that's in your brother's eye, but you do not notice the log that's in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your own eye? Behold, the log is in your eye. You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Third principle is to embrace gentleness when you do this. Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Brethren, if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and therefore fulfill the law of Christ. You can provide a sharp warning to somebody and be gentle at the same time. Your warning, the content of your warning, is what makes it a sharp rebuke, what makes it a sharp admonition. Not the tone you use, not the face you use, not the gestures you use as you're doing this. You can be gentle as you do this. If you need an example, you just open your Bible to any one of the four Gospels and you watch Jesus deal with the Pharisees. He was gentle with them and he was harsh at the same time. Fourth principle, point them to their heart. Point them to their heart. Acts chapter 5. This is the story of Ananias and Sapphira. You know what happened. Ananias and Sapphira sell a plot of land and they take some of the proceeds of that sale and they bring that forward. There's no problem with that. The problem was that they misrepresented the proceeds. This is the whole profit. When instead they kept a portion for themselves. Peter has Ananias in front of him when Ananias comes to him. And look at what Ananias hears from Peter in verse 3 of chapter 5. Peter says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Unruliness will continue. It will continue until the person determines in their heart that they are going to leave their sin. This is a heart issue. So when you go to the person, you have to help them understand that this is a heart issue. 
Maybe it's something you do all the time. You do it without thinking. It's just part of who you are. But it is in your heart. It's part of who you are. Your heart is the essence of who you are as a person. Fifth one. Help them with biblical repentance. Help them with biblical repentance. You say, well, biblical repentance, what, what exactly? How can I help them clearly with that? You know, God is so kind and he is so good. He actually spells out for us what biblical repentance looks like. And it's in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 11. There are earmarks that are given of biblical repentance. Just turn there with me, if you will. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. This is great if you're a parent. This is great if you're a friend. This is great if you're a wife. It's very helpful if you're a husband as well. This is what repentance looks like by God's design. If someone says, I'm repenting, yeah, I've got it under control. I'm repenting. Here are some things you can ask them. You can say, have you vindicated yourself? I'm reading from the NAS here. The ESV uses slightly different language, but... Have you vindicated yourself? Vindicating yourself means that you're living in such a way that what was formerly a part of you is no longer really part of your character. When people look at you, they can say, that's not in him anymore. That's not in her anymore. It's gone. It's not, it's not present. You may have to teach your friend how to be not unruly in this area of their life because maybe it's just a part of them. That's what they've always done. And you can pick the... The example, you can pick the, the kind of area of their life which they might do this. It's just maybe what they've always done. So they might actually need help. So one who's repenting is one who has and continues to vindicate themselves. The second earmark is an indignation. An indignation over being unruly. What this is, is this is a holy anger on your own part of what you caused Jesus to endure on your behalf at the cross. You can't believe what you just did. You are so upset with yourself because of the, the fury that Jesus experienced on your behalf as he died for this particular sin. There's a reverence for God that's based on an accurate assessment of his character. Some translations use the word fear. This doesn't mean to be scared of God. This means to be very aware of how holy he is and what is required of the people who live in relationship with him. The next character of biblical repentance is that you are longing for the relationship with God that you had before you stumbled into this sin. Because we know that when we stumble into sin, our thinking becomes broken, our speaking becomes broken, our acting becomes broken, our affections are broken, our thoughts about the future, our thoughts about the past, everything is messed up. Someone who's repenting is someone who longs for what they had before they stumbled into that sin. The next characteristic is a zeal. A zeal in the pursuit of a behavior that's the opposite of being unruly. This means that you have a sustained diligence in submitting yourself to God's divine. There's a sustained diligence. This isn't the old college try where you give it a, a quick effort and if it works out, that's great. And if not, you quit. This is sustained diligence. You, you are doing this as part of who you are every day. And you're getting all the help you can get from the people around you. Help me with this. I need help because this is so new for me. And lastly, there's an avenging of wrong. If there's any way in which your sin was costly to somebody, the person who's biblically repentant makes that right. And they make it right with the person. This is how you demonstrate that you understand the sin, is that you are more than willing, you're more than happy, you are eager to compensate people. Think of the story of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was another tax collector, and uh, he stole from people, and he sold out to the Romans, and he was giving to them 
uh, the Romans, and he was keeping the prophets for himself. When Jesus saves him, Jesus says, I'm going to your house for lunch today. He didn't tell him this, but he said, I'm going to save you. Zacchaeus comes to saving faith, and and he returns and he repays people 4x what he took from them. And uh, the reason he chose the number four was because in the Old Testament, um, when you steal an animal, you are to replace that, that stolen animal with four of your own when you're repenting. So Zacchaeus is putting himself on par in the same category with an animal thief. That's what biblical repentance is. And you want to help your friends see that. And lastly, you want to be very clear about God's grace in the gospel. Um, if you're ever going to replay, um, admonish somebody, you want to be one who can handle Romans 6 pretty well. Be familiar with Romans 6. Romans 6 is full of grace realities. It's full of everything that's true about a believer now that they're in Christ. I think there are 17 statements, I believe, something like that, in Romans chapter 6. Things that are true about believers that were not true about them before. My favorite is in verse 4. It says, Therefore we have been buried with Christ through baptism and death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too might walk in a newness of life. You go to your friend and you say, Friend, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, um, when Christ was raised from the dead, he did something very significant, very powerful, and that is he dethroned sin as the master and the ruler of your life, and he inserted himself in that place. And he is a much better master over you than you and your sin are over yourself. And you must learn to embrace the grace that comes from Christ, who is your leader and your master. So what if the unruly one is my husband? How do I admonish the one who is in a position over me? That is hard. I'm sitting here. I am a husband. I'm in a room full of women. Many of you are married. This is hard. You're married to one who, let's say he loves God, uh, but he's unruly in some area of his life. He is a work in progress. He is on the trajectory of sanctification. If he's a guy, if he's a girl, he's on the path. She's on the path of sanctification. He's on this trajectory, and he is growing, but this is an area of his life that needs a lot of help. Maybe it needs a whole lot of help. How do you go to him? I want to give you some principles that will just help you. and um, They're short. You jot them down, and I'm going to hopefully have verses for each one of these, and you can look at these later as well. First thing you need to do is pray before you do anything. Pray. Pray for him. Pray for yourself. Um, remember who that person is. It's a subject of God's grace. Remember that their, their salvation comes from the same blood that saved you. Pray that by God's grace you would both be quick to listen and slow to become angry. That's James chapter 1, verse 19. So pray. Go to him in your biblical role. Tell her, tell him rather, um, I am your helper suitable. God has selected me to be your helper suitable in a variety of ways, and that doesn't just mean making you lunch before you go to work. I want to love you, and God knows, and by his design, is that we are going to be used as instruments in this marriage for one another and our holiness. 
And I want what is best for you in this sinful, unruly nature is not good for you. I have a better perspective on this than anybody else in the world because I live right next to you. I'm coming to you in my role as your servant. I'm coming to you in my role as your helper suitable. Third principle, help him see that this is how the body cares for itself. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 16. Listen to the first part of the sentence, and listen to the last part of the sentence, and then what's in the middle helps us understand how it's done. Ephesians chapter 4 says, The whole body, comma, there's a big description, and there's another comma, and it says, causes the growth of the body. We are both a part of the body of Christ, and this is how we cause the growth of one another. We go to one another. The middle of the verse helps us understand how to do that. It says, Being fitted together held together by what every joint supplies by the proper working of each individual part. I'm a joint, you're a joint, we need to supply to one another and because I see something, I I need to bring this to you and I need to do this properly. We talked about how to do that earlier. This is how the body cares for itself. Appeals to them on the basis of your unity as a married couple. Fourth point, Ephesians 5, 28. This is kind of strange, but bear with me on this. Husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. The point here is not to say, well, if I like the air conditioning at 78 degrees, then when I'm not here, I'll let her keep it at 78 degrees in August. That's not what it's saying here. It's not saying treat her the same way that you would like to be treated. What this is saying is you are one, and you love yourself, so you love the other. So the point here is that This doesn't affect you only, this affects us. When you are unruly, it affects the two of us together because we are one. Your unruliness is in the both of us together as we are one. If this proves to be difficult, uh, go to Proverbs. Proverbs has a lot of wisdom for us. It's very helpful. Proverbs 11, 14 says, where there is no guidance, the people fail, but in abundance of counselors, there is victory. If you want to have victory in this, then you need counsel. You need a lot of good counsel. Proverbs 12, 15 says, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but the wise man is he who listens to counsel. Scripture has one description of you. If you reject counsel, that's that you're a fool. So that's admonishing the unruly. Before we talk about encouragement, I think it might be encouraging if we took a break, a short break, and we'll get back together. All right, we're going. Encourage the faint-hearted. First this, 514b. Let's talk first about what it means to be faint-hearted, and then let's talk about how we encourage that person. Uh, faint-hearted is two Greek words joined together. It's a compound word. The first word means little or small, and the second word means soul. So the faint-hearted one is one with a little soul, one with a small soul. This is the only instance of this word in the New Testament. This person is the opposite of the person who is assertive, confident, doesn't fear anything, doesn't appear to have any hardship or difficulty. Um, This is the opposite of a person who is just seeing a consistent stream of success in their life. 
they're successful in their battle against sin, they're successful at work, they're successful in their parenting, they're healthy, everything is going well, they're on top of it all, the whole thing is rolling. Everything is just rolling great. This is the person who's the opposite of that person. This is one who becomes increasingly deflated as um, a difficult situation remains unchanged. So you've got a difficult situation that's in place. It's been in place for a while. It's continuing. It doesn't look like it's going to change anytime soon. Um, And they're continuing to wait. They're continuing to trust. And things are not changing. This is the person who's faint-hearted. This is a difficult circumstance that they're in. It's lasted so long that it's becoming very difficult for them to find their joy in the Lord. They are in this situation, whether it's a health situation, whether it's a family situation, whatever it is, it's been going on for a while. And so they begin to have doubts over God's concern for them and God's care for them. Um, This problem continues. Let's give a couple of examples of of what it could be to be a person who's faint-hearted. The example I have here is a person who has taken a test. Let's say it's a, a certification for the kind of work you're in whether you're an engineer or you're a lawyer or something, whatever it is you do in your field of work, uh, in order to function at the next level that a lot of people get to, you need to take this certification, and um, you just can't seem to pass that test. You study for it just like everybody else. You prepare for it. You pray. You're diligent in your preparation, and you take the test, and you fail the test, and you keep failing the test. Everybody else is sailing on through, and they're going on to bigger and better, and you're still taking that test. That's hard. You can become faint-hearted over that. Sarah and I know somebody who is, at the time that we knew them, they had taken the Arizona bar four times. Um, four times. I'm related to somebody who has taken a practicing engineer test three times and never passed it. Um, and it is kind of engineering. Um, it's very important to have that designation if you want to function in that particular area. Let's say there's uh, some significant sin between a husband and a wife. Um, and the one who initiated that sin um, really caused some harm in that marriage, significant harm in that marriage. And they've been broken by it. Brothers or sisters went to them, and they've been convicted over it, and they go to the other one that they sinned against, and they seek reconciliation. But the other one is so offended and so hurt by it that they're unresponsive, and they reject the plea for restoration. And the one keeps coming and keeps coming and keeps coming faithfully, humbly, says, I want to restore. And the other one will have none of it. That can be very faint-hearted. That can make you very faint-hearted. That's another example. Let's say you've got a loved one and he needs care. They need care. And really, you're the only one that can provide that care. It's just going to fall on you. And what's worse is that one who needs that help is not very pleasant. They're very demanding, it's very difficult, it's very hard, it's very cumbersome, it's not convenient to help them, it's burdensome on you. They're very unappreciative of your help, they will need that help for a long time in the future. Um, It doesn't look like things are going to change. That can make a person very faint-hearted. The Thessalonians were faint-hearted, they were small-souled because they were suffering persecution from the Jews. It didn't appear that the Jews were going away anytime soon, and it didn't appear that they were ever going to change their affections for these Thessalonians who now believe this new thing called the gospel. When the Jews themselves thought they had rights to everything because we are the people that God entrusted. Now we have these Gentiles believing in the God that we believe in. Paul writes to them in chapter 2, verse 14. He says, You brethren, 
You became imitators of the church of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea, because you also endured the same sufferings that are at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did. So the endure word here, as you see in the middle of the verse, implies a prolonged, extended, ongoing suffering. The Thessalonians were in the middle of a very long period of difficulty. And Paul sensed this, and that's why he sent Timothy to them in chapter 3, so Timothy could find out how they're doing, and he could encourage them. You see that at the, in the middle of verse 2 in, in chapter 3. We sent Timothy, our brother and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith. Let's look at the word encouragement and what it means. Uh, again, it's another compound word in the Greek. Um, the first word is para, which means right beside, close beside, like paralegal or paramedic. And the second word means soothing speech. So you've got something that's close beside, and what's close beside is soothing speech. So to encourage is to bring comforting words from close proximity. Let's make a couple observations about this. Comforting words from close proximity. First, effective encouragement comes from somebody who is near you. You have to be near the person. It's a friend who is close beside you. They're not far away. They're actually in your life. To encourage someone means you have to be involved in them, in their life. A friend who draws near to one is one who's willing to leave their own comfort zone, their own set of tasks in order to be a blessing and in order to provide care and encouragement for you. They're not kept away by anything, and they don't have a a distaste over your unpleasant circumstance. Um, Whatever it is that's made them faint-hearted, the friend who cares for them and wants to encourage them is willing to step into that. Maybe her life is just an intertwined mess. Maybe it's just very, very difficult. That's a massive problem, and this person might even be needy. Um, one who encourages is willing to step into that. They're not kept away by any of this. And they're not kept away by commitments they've made in their own schedule either. There's a long list of things that they've added for themselves to do that day and that, and that time that season of life. So um, if you're unwilling to enter into an unpleasant situation to walk alongside a friend... How can you bring encouragement to the one who's in that situation? The one who is living where you're unwilling to go. So a couple of questions we want to ask ourselves is, um, as we consider ones who need encouragement, we need to check ourselves and examine ourselves. Is there anything in us that would make us unwilling to enter their circumstances with them and come alongside them, to become close next to them? Another question is, have I set a level of activity in my life that prevents me from noticing the faint-hearted and helping the faint-hearted? Have I added so much stuff to my life beyond what the Lord has given me to do um, so that I no longer have the ability to, to come alongside somebody who needs to be encouraged? So first, encouragement comes from somebody who is near you. Secondly, encouragement comes from one who has a comforting message. A soothing message is a message that brings true comfort. And this message is a message that does two things. First thing it does is that it acknowledges the situation that person is in. I acknowledge what you're in. I understand it now. I've come alongside you. I see it. And this is hard. And I agree with you. This is hard. And sometimes that's as much of a blessing as anything else is to say, I understand that. Maybe I haven't been there myself, but I hear you. I hear what you're saying. The second thing that you do is you bring somebody the hope of the gospel. Because encouraging your friend with gospel truth is what resets their perspective. They may have been in this thing for so long 
that it is adjusted the way they think. They might have lost sight of some of the essentials of their faith, lost sight of God's choice of them, lost sight of what Christ suffered on their behalf, lost sight of God's grace that is lavished on them so they can bear up under the circumstances they're in. They've lost sight of where they're going when they die. Sometimes when something persists for so long, all you can see is what you're mired in right now. And sometimes it's very, very encouraging to remind somebody of where you're going. Um, When I first became an elder, someone came up to me and they said, hey, what's your position on the end times? And I said, you don't really have one. Um, So I went off and I studied for two years and I came up with what I thought was a pretty sound position on the end times. And what I found as I did that was that when you read about the end times in the New Testament, you find that you're to be encouraged by that. We'll see that in a minute here. Another thing the person might have lost sight of is the fact that God uses trials, even ongoing trials, trials that don't seem to have an end, to grow us in completeness and maturity. Read James chapter 1, verses 2, 3, 4, 5, regularly if you're in a trial. Read it. And just speak truth to yourself if no one is coming to you. So if you're the one who goes to encourage, ask yourself a couple of questions. One, do I know the gospel well enough to encourage somebody else with it? Do I know it well enough to do it in a way that's winsome and effective and it doesn't reek, it doesn't have a stench of arrogance or insensitivity? Can I bring the gospel to somebody in a way that's winsome and encouraging to them? Um, If not, grow in your ability to do that. Secondly, do I regularly encourage myself with the gospel in my situations? Don't go to somebody else with a message that you don't embrace yourself. Do I do this in my prayer life? Do I share this with others in core questions? Um, How God is using the gospel to encourage me. You see that Paul encourages the Thessalonians based on two things. Uh, He encourages them based on their present position in Christ. He also encourages them based on their future position in Christ. So let's look at how he encourages them in their present position in Christ. We're going to stay within Paul's two letters when we do this. Paul is writing to them knowing their persecution. You see this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 2 and 3. We sent Timothy to you to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith, so that no one would be disturbed by these afflictions. So he sends Timothy to them. And remember, this was not an easy trip for Timothy. Timothy was a young man. He's heading right back into that mess that they ran from. But what they're being encouraged by is their faith. I'm encouraging you as to your faith. Listen, you have saving faith. That's the first thing you need to remember in all of this, is that you have saving faith. You're not going to where you used to be heading before you were saved. Jump down to the second letter, chapter 2, verse 13. The persecution has grown even stronger. You were only a short while into it when Paul wrote the first letter. It's going even stronger. It's remained. Um, chapter 2, verse 13. We always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. This soothing message has two parts. First of all, you're beloved. Remember, you're beloved. God loves you. It sounds light, it sounds trite, it's something that's been in place. Everybody throws it around so easily, but you are very dear and very precious to the Lord. And his love is very rich and very powerful. He cares deeply for you. 
Um, I love my wife and I, I have a great deal of interest in her and how she's doing. Her well-being is very important to me. Love my kids and say the same thing about them. Now apply that to God and his love for us, that he would save us in the way that he would send his son to suffer in our place. This is something that God has been very thoughtful about before the foundations of the world. He's loved us in a very special way. It has to do with our identity. And God has chosen us from the beginning for salvation. Every one of us can remember what our life was like before we knew Christ. I was running. I was running as fast as I could away from Christ. I had no idea. And God saved me. And that points me to how, how careful God was to save me and how much he loves me and how he cares for me. Paul also encourages them with their future position in Christ. Let's look at uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Paul says, um, it's very careful how he does this. He says, just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging you and imploring you, in verse 12, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. He's already established in the previous reference that God chose them from the beginning to be holy and blameless. Now he's saying where they're going. He calls you into his kingdom and glory. This encouragement is pointing to a future hope. Their thinking is reoriented to include the perspective of this life, of a kingdom that's being ruled by Christ where everything is going to be made right. Did I forget that? That's First Thess 2, 11 and 12. Thank you. It points their attention to a future kingdom. This is why it's important to understand the, the future events, eschatology. Jesus is going to rule and reign on this earth for a thousand years and everything will be made right. There won't be problems with employment. There won't be problems with relationships. Everything will be made right. You won't need locks on your doors. We locked our house before we left this morning because the ones who are still in there were sleeping. Okay. So notice also that uh, how this person arrives into this future kingdom. There is a personal, effective call, a very effectual call. It's made by none other than the creator of the universe. The creator of the universe has called you into a kingdom that is coming. That's a divine invitation, a personal appointment that God has done. So you go to your brother, you go to your sister who's suffering in the middle of a trial, and you say, God invaded your life personally and called you into an eternity with him. You need to open up the scope of their thinking from this context that may have been going on for a while to a time frame that's very large and very long, 100% of which is going to be spent in eternity worshiping God forever. He does that at the end of chapter 4. That's why we walk through the outline of the book. End of chapter 4, he says, The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. He was saying, what about these people who died already, my, my brothers and sisters? Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and we shall always, always, always be with the Lord. This is a people who is under very severe persecution. It's a small church. It's a fledgling church. It's a weak church in the sense that their numbers are not great. They don't have the overwhelming majority of public opinion on their side. And they have these very powerful Jews from Thessalonica and from up in Philippi coming down and oppressing them. And Paul doesn't give them tactical reasons of how to work with this. He says, here's what's important. Here's what you need to know, that you will always be with the Lord. And that knowledge of that you will always be with the Lord helps you bear up 
other things today. Second Thess, chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and the God of our Father, who has loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace, comfort and strengthen your hearts in every good work and word. Eternal comfort and good hope by grace. Hope, guys. Hope is not this vain wish. It's not this, this, this desire that something might happen. It is a confident belief in a certain future event. And that comes from God. God has given us this confidence in that certain future event. So these two letters are, are very eschatological. They talk about the end times a lot. And that is because these people are suffering a lot. And they need encouragement. And that is what Paul brings to them to encourage them in the midst of their suffering. So how can you tell if your brother is faint-hearted? Just remember that they have a small soul. That's the prominent characteristic. They begin to think in small ways about themselves. This is a person who probably knows what is true. They know the truth that you're going to come to them with. They're in the Word. They maintain a walk with the Lord. They have a real prayer life. But they just need to hear the things that they already know from you. I know that blesses me when somebody says the things that I already know, the things that I've been praying. My brother comes to me and tells me, and I'm blessed by that. So that's encouraging the faint-hearted. Now we're going to talk about helping the weak. And uh, the weak is somebody who, obviously, is lacking in strength. The main focus here is not physical weakness. This is not a physical problem. This is a spiritual problem. They are lacking spiritual strength. What's in view here is somebody who is lacking a sound spiritual foundation. They're lacking a biblical foundation. They don't know how to use the word. They don't know the word. They're easily misled. They lack discernment. They regularly demonstrate poor judgment. They're not inclined to use scripture to inform their decisions. Something comes up and they're using some other grid to make their decision. And this person has a worldview that's not informed by Scripture. A lot of times they're gripped by fear as they view a situation from a secular rather than from a biblical worldview. And they fall into patterns of sin easily because they lack a good biblical foundation. So what this person needs is they need help. And they need help of a spiritual kind. Um, And that's what's in view here with the word help. It's literally to help is to bring necessary aid to a person. And again, the aid that's coming here is not necessarily a a physical or a financial aid, perhaps even an emotional aid. This is aid in the form of helping them grow in their biblical foundation so that they can make more informed decisions, so that they can think rightly about the situation that's in front of them. Some of the Thessalonians were weak in their understanding of the return of Christ, They thought Christ's return was imminent. Paul had been talking to them about this. Christ is coming, so he's coming. When I think he's coming, I naturally think he's coming. And so they had, uh, some of them, had made poorly informed decisions about how to use their time. Earlier in the letter, chapter 4, I believe, we read that they're marching around like busybodies. They're not doing things. It's the same problem that persisted even after this. They were making very poorly informed decisions about the use of their time and their work and their responsibility to work. And it was because they lacked a good biblical understanding of what was coming. Um, So Paul had to address that. And he did that by informing them of the teaching of the return of Jesus. And he talks about 
the rapture at the end of chapter 4, and he talks about the day of the Lord in chapter 5. We'll look briefly at at chapter 5, starting in verse 1. He told them about the day of the Lord. He says, Now as to the times and echoes, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you, for you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. The day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Yeah. While they, while others are saying peace and safety, those that persecute them are saying peace and safety, their destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains on a woman and, and with child, and they will not escape. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another just as you also are doing. So Paul's help to them comes in two parts. First, he says, here's the teaching that Christ's return will be like a thief in the night. It's going to become like a thief in the night, so don't sit around and wait for it because you don't know when it's coming. So keep working, keep being diligent, make good use of your hands, make good use of your time. Secondly, he gives them the instruction at the end of verse 11. Actively build one another up. You guys need to be building one another up, not sitting around waiting for Christ to return. So Paul's help to them addressed a deficit in their understanding regarding the time frame of Christ's return so that they could live a more God-glorifying life. So biblical help is often aimed at strengthening the foundation of the one who needs that help. And let's talk a little bit about how you would help. Are there times when you need to help somebody with a very immediate physical need? Of course there is. And you always make yourself available to help that person by God's grace. But the main aim here, the main thing you need to focus on is helping your brother grow in their biblical foundation, the lens through which they view the world so they can live more productive lives for the Lord. Yes, you do help them meet an immediate need. Of course you do. You do that in a way that's wise. You do that in a way that's thoughtful. You do that in a way that does not enable them to continue in their position of weakness, but you address the fundamental weakness that they have. This means we don't always help in the way that's most obvious. A person might have a physical need that um, came about because of a weakness in their understanding of an underlying principle. For example, you have a person who always seems pressed to meet their monthly bills. And this person has a problem meeting their monthly bills because they don't have a good grasp of stewardship. It's not that they don't have enough funds, it's that they don't have enough wisdom and biblical understanding of how to use those funds. And so they're always short at the end of the month. Their main need is not the $75 to bridge their their need to make rent by the first of the month. Their main need is to have a better understanding of stewardship and what God has entrusted to you. Let's say there's a guy, and he cannot stop talking about a girl. He's always talking about her to his friends. Got to get this. He's always talking about her appearance. He's always talking about her figure, her face, and how she's funny and she's vivacious. And she's smart and she even reads her Bible and she prays. He's always talking about her outward appearance. Let's understand something here, guys and girls. He is, um, he's not smitten with her. He's not whipped over her. He has a fundamental weakness. That weakness is he doesn't understand what is precious to the Lord. He hasn't been in 1 Peter 3 for a little while. He doesn't understand 1 Peter 3. Perhaps he's not even aware of it, that what God sees is valuable, is virtuous, is good, is a chaste and respectful behavior, an adornment that's not merely 
external. He's taken with an undue emphasis on external appearance. He doesn't know how to focus on the hidden person in the heart. He doesn't value a gentle and quiet spirit. That person has a weakness. And I have one word for for anyone who's being pursued by a guy like that, and that is run. He has a fundamental weakness. And he needs to be helped because he is going to bring lots of grief to himself and probably to others as well. So a couple of questions. Um, One is, am I discerning enough to recognize when my friend is weak? When my friend is making comments about their time and their money and their relationship they're in or that they're not in, um, etc. This may be pointing to a weakness in their understanding that I might have an opportunity to help them in. And secondly, do I understand their root need? Am I able to ask enough questions to understand the situation for what it is so I can actually identify what the area of weakness is? So that's helping the weak. And again, primarily it's a physical weakness. Correction. It's a spiritual weakness. A spiritual weakness. It's not a person who's physically weak. The last instruction is that we be patient with everybody. The main thing here, the main word you need to remember is that you're long-tempered. You're long-tempered. Whether it's the unruly one, the faint-hearted, the weak one, whether it's somebody else, because we live in a fallen world, because we live in relationships with one another, we need to be long-tempered. This means we walk with somebody for a long time. If someone remains unruly, we walk with them. If someone remains faint-hearted, by all means, we walk with them. If someone needs help, we don't leave them in their position of need. We continue to help them. It's very helpful to remember that the Lord has committed himself to finishing the work that he began in them. And the rate at which that person grows in their sanctification is not up to us. It's between them and the Lord. And so I need to hang in there and be patient with them. Just remember that I'm a tool in God's hand. And uh, God is the one who is making the change. He's just choosing to use me as a tool in their hand. So again, the main idea there is that you're long-tempered with one, even if it seems like a no-brainer to you. All you have to do is this. You just do this, and they just can't put themselves there. Be long-tempered. So one of the things that, that arose when I was sharing this with the, the gals a month ago and with the guys at Build was, is it possible for a person to be more than one of these things at the same time? The answer is yes. If you have somebody who's weak and they have a, <clears throat> um, a poor understanding of some very important biblical principle and it causes them to make very difficult decisions, poor decisions, they make a decision that's very costly to them, that might have long-standing effects, that person could become faint-hearted over the long haul as they have to endure in the consequences of the situation they entered into originally because of the position of weakness. Sometimes you might find yourself in a conversation with somebody who, within the same conversation, they're actually demonstrating an unruliness at one part of the conversation, and then 10 minutes later they're demonstrating a faint-heartedness And then they're demonstrating a weakness because they have a lack of biblical understanding in some other area. So it's not cut and dried. Um, You'll see all of these things at different times. Sometimes you'll see them at the same time in the same person. Um, But the idea here is that we recognize when a person is unruly and we admonish that person. We recognize when a person is is faint-hearted and we encourage them. We recognize when a person is weak and we help them. 
and we were patient as we were walking down that road with them. Okay. That's it.